really excited to talk about Good Shepherds. Excited is not a word that I was using for most of the last three months. It was sort of like pressure. It, it felt like we, this is important, something we need to do. It's something that I'm wanting, but excited? I'm so grateful that God has tended to my heart in a way to get me to where I'm excited about today. Good shepherds. I think we need good shepherds at Oikos Church. Yes. No amens? Okay. <laughs> we, we need good shepherds. Uh, Kelsey, I sort of expected an amen from you on that. but <laughs> So early on, Oikos Church is two years old. And if, if you're new here, if you're visiting family, I know this is sort of like a weird day to step in on. It's almost like a, a meeting, except with a lot of Bible involved. But we're really honored to have you, and this is actually a really important thing. And I think if you're part of a church, wherever it is you're coming from, you know that this is really special, and this is weighty. Um, but more than two years ago, before we actually planted, um, Kelsey and I, we had, we had our, our vision for what we wanted. And before there was even a launch team, before there was a gathering place, before there was even a direction team, we knew that we needed spiritual covering. You know what I mean by covering? We needed help. We needed wisdom. We needed wise men to help us, but we didn't have elders, right? We, we couldn't have elders. There was no church to even draw elders from. And so one of the first things we did was we, we sought the Lord and we built what we now call a governance team. I get to sit on the governance team of Oikos Church with some really great men. These are men that we've known a long time. They were all from local churches, men of high character and high gifting that were willing to help us out. And they were a blessing. They helped us with legal stuff and organizational stuff and financial stuff and doctrinal stuff. They helped us with documents and, and things. And I'm really grateful. I mean, just this year, you know, it's, it's sort of this whole year as we transition into eldership, God willing. It's a year of me just telling those guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, it's really a special thing they did for us. And it was really special for us. I mean, the two of us to be cared for, to be loved because these men devoted themselves to prayer for me and for my kids and for my wife. You know, they weren't concerned with the kind of affairs of all of us. They, they were concerned about us, and that was really special. But in God's grace, he's grown us to a, a place. He's matured our church to a place where I'm not the only one who's in need of that. And he's also grown us to a place where we have men who are capable of that. And so today I celebrate what God has done in two years of Oikos Church to get us to this point. Can I just share a couple of reflections from Old Testament, a couple of reflections from the prophets, and then we're actually going to look most of our time in 1 Timothy 3. But let's start with a couple of humorous reflections from the Old Testament. Kelsey and I were reading, when Moses gets overwhelmed, and it happens a lot, God's actually really gentle to overwhelm pastors and people on the verge of burnout. It's just like, why did you lead me here, God? Why did you give me these people? Moses keeps asking that question. One of my favorite times is in Exodus 18. Exodus 18 is the story when his father-in-law, it's interesting to me that my father-in-law is part of Waco's church. We've had similar conversations. Moses' father-in-law comes, and here's some of the things he says. He's, Moses gets up in his seat at the beginning of the day, and there's this line of people all day long who are just waiting on Moses to do his thing. And the father-in-law sees it and he says, what you're doing is not good. Have you heard? This is not good. Right? This is Genesis 2 language. It's not good for man, what? Be alone. 
You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it. Do you see that word? Alone. This is not good. And so he says, you're doing too much. There's a bottleneck. You need some help. And so what he tells them, he says, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and, as, and appoint them as officials. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. And so he says you need to like reorganize the leadership structure of the people of Israel. And so he said, I'm giving you advice, but this is really a command of God. And so Moses, he does it, and his shoulders are lightened because he gets help. He also now feel this. We felt this. That's why we have a governance team to begin with. I, I anticipated feeling it. But even as we grow and mature, we're feeling it again. But here's my favorite one. This is Numbers 11. One commentator, he says, just as the people are sick and tired of manna, Moses is sick and tired of the people. <laughs> Look at Numbers 11, verse 10. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining. This is the NLT. This is what Kills and I were reading together. We were just laughing. The Lord became extremely angry, and Moses was also very aggravated. Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to your land that you swore to give to their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me. Love this. They keep whining to me. No more manna, no more manna. We want meat. Let's go back to Egypt. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. And so God, he promises them meat. He says, you'll, you'll get meat. And then he says, you won't just have a day of meat. You won't have two days of meat. You won't have 20 days of meat. You're going to eat meat every day until you gag. <laughs> It's, a, it's an act of judgment because they're, they want to go back to Egypt and not even appreciating God. And Moses is like, what? I have to come up with a month's worth of meat for everybody now? I have 600,000 people. He said, if I slaughtered all the flocks and we caught all the fish in the sea, I couldn't provide enough meat. Why did you make me do this? And so he says, this is God's message to him. Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders. We know where the concept of elders comes from. It's just the old man in the community in Israel. But this is the first time that elders are called out and given the task of leadership in the Old Testament. I will take some of the spirit that's upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also, and they will bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not have to carry it, you see it again, alone. Um, both of these texts in Exodus and in Numbers are about a guy who's got a lot on his plate and God is gracious to those people and the way he answers it is with spirit-filled, gifted, high-character men. That's who he needs around him. And so he fills them with the spirit and they begin prophesying and the burden is, is eased. That's hilarious to me. And in some ways I'm like, at least it's not that bad. You know, it's like... <laughs> 600,000. He is so stressed about where he's going to find all the meat. And God says, is my arm too short that I can't do it? You just watch him and wait. I'm going to take care of this for you. And he does. Of course he does. So Kelsey and I, we feel this. We need good shepherds. I feel this. I really 
I really would love for God to give us some good shepherds. And I think, I think you probably feel this too. You, you come into a church, and it's different than anything you've ever been a part of. And we have people from all different kinds of denominational backgrounds. We have a lot of people from Churches of Christ, and this is so different. You're like, I, we don't even know. What's going on with leadership? I was talking to a relatively new person. He's like, yeah, I sort of started thinking, I don't know anything about the governance of this church. And that, that's, a, that's a really disorienting, vulnerable position to be as a partner. Because you probably have lots of questions, but you don't want to be a stick in the mud, or you don't want to be a thorn in the side. And so you're trying to be gracious, but you're also you're feeling that. Because you want to take a step into biblical. And I do too. And I think this is all part of our, our kind of step together as a church towards good shepherds. There's a burden of leadership that I don't think many of you want me to bear alone. And you've already heard me say, I don't want to. But then there's also just this kind of general step, not just a burden of leadership, but we understand what I'm calling the gravity of leadership. You know, gravity is like a weight, the load. It matters. I really think leadership matters. And I also know that in some ways it, it feels like in our culture, of course it doesn't matter. I mean, look at our politicians. Does leadership really matter? 50 years ago, our trust in institutions and government, 70% of people said the government, you can just trust them to do the right thing. Now that number is about 15%. And so what happens when you have bad leaders is that you can, you can just want say it doesn't matter. We don't need leaders. But this isn't true. Even the cynicism of the fact that we can't have good leaders, that cynicism is corrosive to a culture. It is not good to have bad leaders. And it is not good to have no leaders. Amen. What we need are good leaders, good shepherds. I'm, I'm really convinced of this. I was listening to a leadership author named Todd Bolsinger. He's a really great author. One of my favorite leadership books is a book called Canoeing the Mountains that he wrote. But he was reflecting, he's seen, I've, he says, I've seen a lot of people promoting books who basically take an anti-leadership position, especially for the church. He says what they want is not leaders, they want what they call shepherds. They just want gentle people who will be with the people. He says, but this misunderstands a few things. He says, I keep saying the point isn't to get rid of the leadership. The point is to get rid of bad leadership. The problem with bad shepherds isn't their authority. It's their sin. It's that they didn't feed and protect the sheep. And so he says we need good shepherds because there are bad shepherds. This is Paul's point in Acts 20. It's the, Acts 20 is his farewell address. I'll, I'll talk more about it in just a second. He calls in, he's at Miletus, he calls in the Ephesian elders, and he gives them, like, the last, the last goodbye. And they're crying. What are you doing breaking my heart? And he sits weeping with these men. But what he tells them, he says, it's because wolves are going to come into your flock. Where are they coming from? Wolves are coming from among you. We need good shepherds because there are bad shepherds. This is, this is why they go, they appoint leaders in all the churches that they plant in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Why? Because we need good leaders. I'm, I'm just totally convinced that we don't just need people who are gentle and present. We need people who are strong and present. Yes, gentle, leaders and shepherds. But what Bolsinger says, he says that many of the people resisting leadership in the church who are advocating for this, they actually misunderstand the biblical category of shepherd. Did you know that the word shepherd in the Old Testament, this is especially clear in like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, in the prophets, 
shepherd refers to kings. Kings, not counselors. Kings, the highest authority. That's just what they call the kings. Why? Well, if you think of the person in highest authority in Israel, it's normally a shepherd. Abraham, shepherd. Moses, shepherd. A little boy David, shepherd. And what's he famous for? He's famous for protecting the sheep from the mouths of lions. He's this great warrior. And so shepherds in the Old Testament are the military leaders, the, the political leaders and the religious leaders. It, they are, they're men of authority. And so I want to look just for a second at, at some of this in Jeremiah. Take a look at this. Look at the gravity of leadership. He says, woe to the shepherds. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, he says the same line. Woe to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care upon them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done, declares the Lord. You see why shepherds matter? Because people follow shepherds. It may feel like, well, I get to do my own thing. But no, in, in, in the story of Israel, it's the faithfulness of a king that is the faith of the people. If he goes, we all go. And so the renewal of a people starts with the renewal of a king. The decline of a people starts with the decline of a king. They lead them astray. Isaiah talks about these are sheep without a shepherd. How do you know? Ezekiel 34, he says, it's because they've wandered over the mountains. They don't have any people to care for them. No one is tending to them. They are lost sheep. Lost sheep and no one's going after them. But what all the prophets say, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all say there's a good shepherd coming. Look at this. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out on all the, country, all the countries where I've driven them. And I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. And I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. God is going to shepherd his people, and God is going to give his people good shepherds. God doesn't want a leaderless people. He wants a shepherded people. And the shepherded people, they look to God as their true shepherd, but then they look to these others who God is giving. Of course, we know where this goes. I just want to point here, and then we'll come back to it. This is how it comes. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Remember, the shepherd is king. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Lord, come quickly. But until then, we need good shepherds. So in, in this intermediate place, while we're waiting on the Lord, our righteous Savior, to return, God, would you give us shepherds? Could you just close your eyes and let's pray and ask God for shepherds? God, we need good shepherds in this church. Would you send them? Would you raise them up? Would you burden their hearts? Would you call them into service? Would you... Reveal to us men of high character who are spirit-filled, who have the capacity to carry this call. 
God, we need good shepherds. We're asking you for good shepherds. Would you help us in this process as we search for them? Thank you, Lord God, for your help. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we need good shepherds. Who are we looking for? There's a bunch of texts in the New Testament that describe these shepherds. And we have a, a resource available to you that lists most of those texts. This resource is called the Elder Nomination Resource. Really exciting title. It's on the blue table. And if you could just grab one, every, every household, I would love to at least read through it. The back page of this, and we'll talk more about this at the end, is an Elder Nomination form. So the whole thing is like, here's what we're looking for. Then the back page, you fill out and turn it in to Reed Stafford by the date on it. Reed Stafford is basically going to be the holder of a lot of our documents and forms during this process. I'm really grateful. We needed somebody who everybody knows. Everybody knows Reed. We needed somebody who everybody trusts. Everybody trusts Reed. And in many ways, we also needed somebody who was willing to not be a nominee. And Reed agreed to that um, during this process. I'm grateful to Reed. So, a lot of our forms, starting with a nomination, will be turned into read in writing at some point. But there's a list of texts. It's 1 Timothy 3 is the one we're going to be in today. It's Titus 1. It's Acts chapter 20. It's 1 Peter 5. There's a lot of texts that shape how we think of good shepherds. And I think these are just really reliable places to go. But you can't improve on them. And so a lot of what I'm going to do is just expound and just summarize them. But I want to point you to the text as our guide for our search for good shepherds. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. It's a really important thing that he, he says throughout this letter. Basically, he's saying, listen up. I got something really important to say here. This is important. Note it down. Paul, we're listening. He says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Let's just talk about language. Have any of you ever called it an overseer? No. You ever heard the word bishop? Yeah, that's another translation of this same word. But the idea of bishop doesn't really develop until 100 years after this letter, so that's not really what Paul's talking about. But in the New Testament, there's a variety of words that all describe the same office. Overseer is one of those words. Elder is one of those words. And shepherd or pastor. Pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd. So shepherd, elder, overseer all refer to the same, the same office. And different, Paul will say these words over here, and Peter will say these words over here. But actually, they seem to be not exactly interchangeable. They each have their own nuance. Elder is mostly about maturity. Shepherd is more about authority. And overseer is more about like leadership and management. And what we're looking for is somebody who has that blend. It's actually all of those pieces. So Acts chapter 20, remember that farewell? In verse 17, he calls the elders. He says, send for the elders. When the elders show up, he says, these are the ones that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then the next verse, he says, so shepherd the flock. You see, he uses all three words. We use them interchangeably. So if you're wondering, what are we after? We're after men who oversee. We're after men who are elders, and we're after men who are shepherds, or you could call them pastors. I typically use pastor to describe that same sphere, but with a teaching role. So at Oikos, I am the lead pastor, 
although I prefer the title lead planter. But what that means is that I actually serve on the governance team and my role will transition to the new eldership. I will serve there and I will be the, the primary voice of teaching. Although, Lord willing, not exclusively that voice of teaching from that group. So overseer is a word, but we're still talking about that same idea of elder. He says, and if you're looking for an overseer or an elder or a shepherd, you desire a noble task. But look at this language of aspire and desire. There's this debate when it comes to elders if you have to desire it. And there's a lot of people in a lot of churches who teach that if you do not desire this, you are not qualified for it. I have some of my own mentors. That is their view. That's my, my own dad's view. My dad served as an elder for about 17 years. And he thinks you have to desire it. I humbly disagree, Dad. He knows this. And it's really because of what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. Does Jesus desire everything about his calling? He actually says, this is not my desire. I don't want this. He, he's even stronger than that, right? He's like, is there any other way? Let this cup pass for me. And he's weeping about it. Does, does Jesus desire the cross? Or does he submit to the will of his fathers, his desire for the cross? It seems that there's some blend of yes. Because his will is so shaped by his father's will that he wants to do what his father is asking, even though he knows it's going to be hard. And so I'm really talking to a few men who will likely be nominated over the next six weeks. I want to talk about your desire for just a second. I do not believe that you have to desire this. In fact, if you desire it for the wrong reasons, I would have questions about the calling to this office. There's, there's leadership and power and there's ego and there's notoriety and there's a, a place in the crowd and there's all these things that can add to your desire. I actually would love to see somebody who just says, I don't really want it, but I'm going to follow God's will here. I believe this is God's call and so I will say yes. I think that's the kind of men we're after. They aspire, but they aspire to a noble task. One of my questions, I'm going to come back to it, is why would anybody want to do this? It's, it's really hard. There's so much vulnerability. And for this role in particular, not mine, y'all support me. I was thinking, as we were doing the generosity of liturgy, and Grace does such an outstanding job when she's up here. One of the primary things y'all give to is me and my kids. And I get to tell my kids, you know, everything we have is because the church of God's people, they're generous. They share with us. We wouldn't be here without them. We wouldn't be here without you. But these elders that we're calling in, we're calling in as volunteers. Why would anybody do this? And it's because it's noble. There's honor. Honor is, is a word that means like a heaviness, but a worthiness. This is a good thing to want. God needs good shepherds in his church. So before we ever get to qualifications, let's, let's just think of our desires and what we're after. What does this man look like? This is verse 2. Now the overseer, the elder, the shepherd is to be above reproach. This is actually a, maybe the driving category for the whole thing. It, all throughout the letter, he's really concerned about both the community here and the community at large 
having a good reputation. You don't want to sully the name of Jesus if it's at all possible. If it depends on you, let's live honorably among all. Now, of course, Paul, I mean, he's stoned and left for dead outside cities. So, you know, he's, he's willing to go there. But if you looked at his character, you would see that actually he hadn't done much wrong here. You're the one in the wrong. We're, we're after someone who's above reproach. There's a lot of translations in how they talk about this. Um, New King James calls it blameless. And so we're looking for people not who are perfect. You will not find a perfect shepherd until the good shepherd returns. We're looking for men who are above reproach with consistency, not perfection. This, the second one here is it's really a mark of above reproach, and he calls it faithful to his wife. Now, this is one that it seems that there's a lot of kind of approaches and interpretations in what this phrase means. Let me share from Liefeld and his commentary. He says the expression used here literally translates man of one woman or a one woman man. But this needs careful interpretation. Does it mean husband of but one wife? NIV. Husband of one wife, New American Standard, married only once, New Revised, or something like committed to his wife, the message, or faithful to his wife, NLT. There's a lot of, even the translations take different approaches on this. What's interesting to me is I've seen elders who will step down if their wife passes away, because they will think of themselves as not exactly not faithful to his wife, but no longer a one-woman man. And I can say with confidence, that's actually not what he has in view here. In two chapters, he's describing the qualifications for widows, these older women who are put on the church staff in a service role. And he says they need to be one-man women. One-man women. Guys, these are widows. They're no longer married. This phrase can describe both someone who's married and someone who's not married. So um, what, what does it mean? A life of, he says, rather than being legalistic as to whether an elder was married more than once, he's chosen a phrase here that indicates a standard of marriage that would earn respectability in the society within which the early church functioned. You hear what he's saying? He's like, this is, this is just a way of talking about above reproach in regard to his relationships. N.T. Wright, I'm actually persuaded by this. He argues that the context that we should read this in is primarily of polygamy. Polygamy is where you can be married to more than one woman at the same time. And that sounds like a weird thing in Utah to us. But at this time, it's actually pretty common in the ancient world, both in Roman world and in some parts of the Jewish world. And so Wright says, I don't think this means that the, the bishop or the elder should not have been married more than once and lost his wife through death or divorce and then married again. He says polygamy was common in Paul's world. There would have been polygamous, he basically says, there would have been a lot of polygamous converts and you see this in Africa today. He says, as the gospel goes into tribal Africa, you'll find men who are married to many women in the same village. And he says, you can't just destroy their families and, and erase them. And he says, but neither should you put them in positions of leadership. They are not the model of what marriage is. The model of marriage is one man and one woman for life. And so he says, faithful, lifelong partnerships of one man and one woman, that's what church leaders should model. He says, nor do I think this means that the bishop must be married. This, this is Wright's position, and I'm persuaded by this. 
Nor do I think that this means that the elder or the bishop must be married. In other words, that single people are ruled out. What is being ruled out is a person in the position of leadership who has two or more wives. And I understand there are different interpretations, and you might have your own conclusion here that's different than mine. But I think Paul is the one writing with authority over the community that he planted. And he's not married. Not to mention, Jesus isn't married either. Now, there are, of course, some people who would say, but you learn a lot in marriage. And I, I totally agree. You, I have, Kelsey is my, my biggest teacher. You learn a lot. And if you're not married, you probably don't have kids. And you learn a lot about how to manage things and how to grow people and raise up people. I, I get all that. But I also think you learn a lot through a lifelong celibacy. I also think you learn a lot about self-discipline. I think you're able to see single people. In, in other words, it's like, yes, this perspective has amazing gifts, and I think this perspective also has amazing gifts. So what I think this phrase is actually after is, if you're married, you're faithful. You're married to one woman. You have sexual integrity and a lifelong commitment. So is marriage required? This is Ray Van Nest of Union University at the time. He says, there's a lot of views, but on any of these views, Paul is actually speaking of the ordinary cases and is not absolutely requiring marriage or children. And guys, these are not like progressive scholars. These are, these are really conservative, uh, Bible-believing scholars. He says what he's giving is a picture of the typical approved overseer as a faithful husband and father. He says, but this is just a typical picture. It's not necessarily the required picture in his understanding of these texts. So he says, a further question is whether a person who has never married can be an elder. Since in New Testament times, an elder would have probably been a married male, it's not strange that the wording of the qualifications reflects that reality. He says most everybody would have been. It is true that a person who has never been married lacks experience and can be, that can be valuable in counseling, but that person may, through celibacy, have demonstrated a valuable self-discipline. Singleness need not be considered a barrier to eldership. The text does not make such a statement, but deals rather with character and with purity of sexual relationships. Again, you may disagree. That's actually okay with me. It's also a question here on, can you be divorced? That's very in, much connected with this. And it seems that there's a lot of different reasons why people get divorced. Not all of them are the same. And so I would want to look at those case by case. Lifefield, he says, the standard that an elder should be blameless surely refers to one's present life. Paul himself writes of his former sins as forgiven so that he could be an apostle. At the same time, sometimes a divorce and remarriage produces continuing effects that can hinder the testimony and work of an elder. Some matters may need to be cleared up before considering a person for eldership. An elder who has gone through sin and forgiveness, divorce and remarriage, may indeed be a more wise and understanding counselor. At the same time, one does not have to be an elder to provide counseling. Whether or not a person has been divorced is not the major issue. The issue is whether the individual's life and care of his family now exemplify Christianity. Guys, Paul was a murderer. I mean, it's just like... It's, it's, we cannot have a lifelong standard of perfection. We have to have some mercy in our factoring. And the, the factoring is primarily about the present life and the above reproach reputation that he brings into his life right now. Now, that can also be a block, as he says. 
So that, that's a lot on that point. We're not going to do that on every phrase. That, to me, seems like a really important category as we think about nominations and single men, men who've been divorced and remarried, or men who are married. We'll also have to talk about this when it comes to children, but let's look at each of these phrases much more quickly. He calls it temperate. Temperate uh, in the ESV is sober-minded. It's just like grounded, thoughtful. You're self-controlled. You're respectable. Respectable means in the NLT, you live wisely. You, you have a good behavior, good reputation. You're hospitable. This is a really interesting phrase. Literally, it's the love of strangers. The NLT translates it, he must enjoy having guests in his home. And I just think that's a little too weak for what the love of strangers really is. Lifefield, he says the word here implies far more than having friends over for dinner. It's about the service of strangers through your home. He must be able to teach. Able. This is about an ability, not a knowledge base. It's about an ability. The elder here is, is, you'll see, is tasked with the teaching and the feeding, the nourishment of the whole community. In private conversations and in public settings, the elder has to have the ability to teach. This is the one trait that seems to be uncommon. It, it's unique to elders. Deacons, it's basically the same list. But elders have to have the ability to teach because this is their role. Now, a lot of us come from places where the teaching is primarily done by someone who's hired by the elders and is not an elder. I don't think that's what Paul's vision here is. His vision is for the teaching to come from those with authority to feed the sheep, the pastors, shepherds, overseers, and elders. So he's not given to drunkenness, which means in the ESV, he's not a drunkard. In the New King James, he's not given to wine, which is the literal translation. Or NLT means he must not be a heavy drinker. It's like, you know, I think, again, you softened it a little too much. We need somebody who understands, basically, whose life isn't dependent on something for his own good. Someone whose primarily coping isn't alcohol or any other substance or activity. We need somebody who's rooted in God enough to get through the day, right? Uh, the drunkenness piece, the alcohol piece, I think this also means we're looking for someone who's willing to set aside his liberties for the sake of the community. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that is such a mark of an elder who's above reproach. You limit your freedoms voluntarily for the sake of the community. You manage your own household well. Um, you're sorry, you're not violent, but gentle. That seems like a pretty baseline standard for anybody. You're not quarrelsome. Divisive people have no business ever being in an eldership. And they're not a lover of money. He says, greed has to stay away. And if they seem to be in it for the money, don't let them in. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. Now, this is a tough phrase, right? What's he after here? He says, he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect and if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The principle seems to be that the family is basically a proving ground, which makes a lot of sense. The family, you know what the word for family is in Greek? Oikos? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and in this same chapter, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, he says the church is the oikos of God. It's the family. 
And so how do you prove yourself? He says the first place to prove yourself is in the family, and then you have to prove yourself in the oikos. And then after you've proved yourself in both spheres, then you're, you're ready. There's so much to be learned by watching how someone manages their home. But does this mean they have to have faithful children? That seems to be what Titus chapter 1 verse 6 says. Some translations will even say they have to be believers or faithful. But I'm struck by a few things, especially in the Titus text. And I know I'm getting into the weeds of Greek stuff, but I think this matters. When Titus says his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, what he's saying is while they're in your home, they cannot have a reputation for wildness or rebelliousness. Why do I think this? It's because of the word he uses for child is not a general word about your sons or your daughters or your offspring. It's little children. This is the word he uses. It's little children. Van Ness, again, the Union University professor, he says the word children would apply only to children living at home and still under their father's authority. And I've been there. <laughs> I had a sibling. I'll leave him nameless who, when my father was asked to be an elder, did not feel qualified because of some of the things going on in our home. And later on, he did. So, when it says your children are believers, or that he rules his own household, basically it's saying that within the community, people can tell that his children respect him. That he's tender and gentle with his kids, and his kids have an honoring relationship with their father. And if they don't, that's not going to translate well. It's not going to be good for his reputation, and it's not a good in indicator of his leadership capacity. So other people say, no, you have to have all believing children. Well, he says this seems to make the parent responsible for a child's salvation. And by extension, would make church leadership dependent upon the elder's children. The meaning here may be broader than it seems at first. The phrase here describes outrageous behavioral activity that would bring public disrepute disrepute on the eldership in the church. I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking for men who are good dads, whose sons and daughters love them, and who aren't disqualified on the basis of how their sons are living in the world. And daughters. It's a little projection from my own history, I guess. A little Freudian slip. <laughs> he must not be a recent convert. Uh, some translations say novice. Why? Or he may become conceited, and he'll fall under the same judgment as the devil. A lot of times when someone's gifted, and they have a lot of charisma, they don't have the character to carry them there. Your charisma can get you on stage, and your character can't hold it. What will happen? You will be crushed under the burden of pastoral leadership. This is not for you. If your public visibility is far greater than your private integrity, it will crush you. You will flame out, you will burn out, and then perhaps even worse after that. There needs to be a season of growing and maturing so that you, you get the muscles ready for this. This was actually, Jacob and Rachel are getting married this weekend. And this has been my prayer for them, that God would not lead them into the wilderness in year one, but that he would lead them into an oasis instead. Why? Because... Before you can go into the hard stuff, it's really good to like build up some muscle memory and some strength, some endurance. We do not need men who are novices in the faith. We need men who are grounded and mature and have the character to, to sustain them where their charisma leads them. 
He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the main thrust of the letter. We do not need to bring shame on our community or on the name of Jesus Christ. And so we need, we need people who are not in it for themselves and instead are thought highly of by outsiders. All right, can I just summarize some of what we've talked about here with a tool that we use very often uh, as we're evaluating leaders and potential leaders from everyone, from like ministry team leaders and group leaders all the way up to, to elder. And I just call it the five seasons of leadership. I didn't invent this. I'm sure you could Google it and find somebody who's doing the same thing. Um, the five seasons of leadership is just an alliterative way to kind of summarize what we're talking about and what we're looking for. The first C here that we're looking for are men of character. Men of character. And a good shepherd imitates the character of the good shepherd. He has the fruit of the Spirit in his life, and you can see it and you can tell. He models the description that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus 1 or elsewhere. And he's above reproach. He's well-regarded in the community. He's faithful in his marriage. He's respected in his home. He's in control of his tongue. He's in control of his anger. He's able to resolve disputes in peace. He must not be addicted to anything. And that's not to say he couldn't have been an addict. But he needs to have demonstrated a track record of recovery and self-control. He's willing to lim limit his liberties for, for others in Christ. And he must be a servant in and for the community. This, this is the character that we're looking for. We're looking for spirit-filled, high-character men of God, just like that Exodus 18 and Numbers 11. We're, we're looking for spirit-filled guys, just like Acts 6, whenever they're appointing the, the helpers to the apostles. The second of the five C's is what I call competency. What I mean is they have the right gift set, the skills for what we're after. One of the key pieces of what they're doing here, there's, there's really three, is shepherding, spiritual leadership, and teaching. Shepherding, spiritual leadership, and teaching. And shepherding, what I mean is they have basically pastoral oversight. They, they need to be able to be present and be in the room with people, talking through the hard stuff of life. They need to be able to carry the brokenness with gentleness and strength all at the same time. By spiritual leadership, what I mean is the organizational oversight. There's legal and financial issues that come up. You know, there's filings and, and taxes. There's, there's organizational leadership and hiring and, and things like this. And many of you think, well, we don't want elders to be focusing on that. And I used to think the same thing until I had to focus on that. And it's like, no, you, you absolutely want high character people carrying this load for the church. Imagine if you have low character people doing it. Imagine if you have people outside the church who aren't even familiar with what we're doing. You cannot outsource good leadership. We need good shepherds to do this work. Now, that can't be the sole focus, but there are some men who are gifted in spiritual leadership and organizational oversight, and we need their gifts brought to bear at this church. We also need the gifts of shepherding and pastoral care, but it's like most men don't have every gift from God, right? We actually need a complementary team of men who bring these together. The third competency the skill, the gift set that they need is doctrinal oversight, to teach and defend the gospel. The ability to teach and defend the truth because they're tasked with defining and teaching and defending it. Guys, this is the major task of shepherds in the text in the New Testament. You may think it's visitation. No. Acts 6, the, the apostles are like, we have to focus on the word. Let's raise up somebody like deacons or special ministry leaders 
They need to go care for the widows, and they need to carry this because we have work to do in the Word. This is Moses in Exodus 18. He's like, I can't take care of everyone. And his father-in-law says, why are you doing it like this? He says, because I have to teach the people. He says, you need help so that you can focus on teaching. The elders are the ones who focus on the teaching. We need help, sure. We have ministry teams for that. We need people dedicated to the ministry of the Word, to the study of the Word, who will go read the book on the hard subject so that they can speak wisdom to the culture that's confused, who can go into the room when they're struggling with marriage or they're debating life transitions and they know what God's Word says about a topic, who doesn't just say, yeah, I, I know that's important, but I haven't really thought about it yet. No, we need people who understand what God is saying, God's voice, on all the hard stuff of life. We need people dedicating themselves in the hours that it takes to get prepared here. This is what it looks like to shepherd. It looks like gently feeding, intending, and caring for the sheep, and it looks like in strength and power, knocking out the threats and killing the wolves. We need people who understand the cultural winds and when the wolves come in in sheep's clothing and can recognize them. The reason I'm so passionate about that, and I think you can tell that I am, is because that is not the picture of elders that I have ever been told. I've been told that elders should be good pastors and they should come alongside. And I've been told sometimes that elders should be good organizational leaders. And I have never seen elders take up the mantle of wisdom from the word that I think is entrusted to them in the scriptures. It's one that I've given my life to preparing. I have years of training and years of experience, and I continue to find new subjects where I feel out of my depth, and we need a team of people to come alongside me in this work of preaching and proclaiming. Okay. The third of the five C's is capacity. And honestly, this may be, for the men you're thinking of nominating, this may be the most important. Most of you aren't going to nominate lousy guys, right? You're going to think, I, who are the best dudes here? I want to nominate that guy. And the guys that are the best guys here have full lives. That's part of what makes them so special is because they make time for you. And they make time for us. And they make time for your group. And they make time to be here on Sundays. You know, it's like their lives are full. And so an elder has to have the capacity to care for his own soul, to care for his own household, and to care for the Oikos community as a whole. He makes Oikos a priority in his schedule. He's here to worship with us. He's a part of a group, and he's probably leading a group. He has to have the capacity for regular meetings, for ongoing leadership dinners with his wife, as well as the margin for all the other needs that arise in the life of elders. This is a hard call, and it will require sacrifices for the men that we're considering. We're asking for a three-year term commitment to a three-year term that can be renewed for a second three-year term, and then whether you like it or not, you have to take a year-long sabbatical. And then you can go back through the process. There's no limit on the number of terms, but there is a limit on the length of terms, and that gives you a way out. <laughs> this is not a lifetime sentence or a lifetime appointment. Fourth, chemistry. What we mean by chemistry is like how well do they fit and connect with the other leaders, with the church, but particularly with me and, and the direction team? How do they connect well with the other men being considered as elders? What this looks like is somebody who demonstrates love 
and mercy and forgiveness, who can manage his own anxiety in a room, who's not toxic in any way. And actually, this also looks like you have to have the full support of the current governance team, and then in the future, the full support of the elders in order to be um, invited into this. Um, we, this is just so important, and you may think, well, that's not that important. <laughs> the level of trust required to walk this out in, in love and brotherhood is just, it's such a deep level of trust. And if there's somebody who's distrusting or is unmerciful and unforgiving, it's just going to be really hard to ever do anything productive. We're just going to be tending to our own kind of conflicts in our own selves, and that isn't good. That's not what our community needs. The last one here is what I call calling. An elder is called by God to the Oikos community. He is called to shepherd these people. <laughs> not some ideal church. These people. In this place. In this time, in this way, in this model, in, in, in this vision. You know, it's, they're called to this church. And a nominee has to demonstrate the highest levels of alignment with our mission and our values and our beliefs. And actually, some of these beliefs are going to be beliefs that we don't ask all the partners to agree on. Not every partner has to agree on every topic. But we need alignment at the highest levels of, of leadership for the sake of our own doctrine. We want to speak with one voice on really sensitive matters. And so this is just part of the calling. It's like, is there alignment here? Okay, so that's what we're looking for, the five C's. And your elder nomination form is going to have you... Basically, just write one or two lines to describe why you think the nominee that you're putting forward has these traits. Here's our, our prayerful process. Here's what you can expect. Today begins our elder nomination season. And the reason we timed it right now is because we are in, as a church, a season of prayer and fasting. And I would love for you to pray and to fast about the nominations that you're going to make. I want you to... See we don't have to be in a hurry here. You have until March 30th. You have until March 30th to return these forms to read. Okay, so that gives you about six weeks to pray, to seek God, to read through these texts. And if you need to, have conversations with your friends about what you're looking for. I think communal discernment is a really good gift. And so the first step in our process is a nomination. The second step in our process is evaluation. And what we're going to do in the month of April is allow some, some time on, on Easter Sunday. I'm going to communicate with all the nominees that they've been nominated. And then they will feel an anvil on their hearts. <laughs> and I will give them a questionnaire and invite them into a self-evaluation process with their, with their wives if, they, if they're married. And they'll have some time to just think, is this something that I even want to consider? There'll be a lot of time for me and the current governance team to kind of chat about some of those questionnaires and things we're getting. There'll be some interviews and, and some dialogue that happens during this season. And then in the month of May, the ones who want to continue on and have enough kind of, kind of baseline alignment, they, their names will be put before you, most likely, God willing, on May 12th. That's the first Sunday that we're together all together in May. And then you'll have the month of May to give some evaluation in writing about these candidates. Um, what we're looking for in that evaluation season, and we'll talk more about it as we go on in these months, but we're just looking for to make sure that these men are above reproach. And it's really hard 
for our governance team who's not part of our community, and it's really hard for me alone to be able to see this, and so we need your eyes and your discernment to help us in that evaluation season. After evaluation, the men will be invited into a season of formation. And what this will look like is from June to the end of the year, we'll start meeting about once a month. We'll start meeting about once a month. We'll have some books to read on the task of eldering, so to speak, on like personality tests, on some doctrinal issues and kind of making sure that we're still on the same page. We'll probably take a retreat together. You know, it's, it's a way not just to kind of train, but also to train us as a team to get running whenever the next step comes. But in addition to those meetings and training, we're also going to invite those men and their wives into a monthly dinner. The focus of this dinner isn't so much training. It's not reading and things like that. It's just friendship. It's, it's to cultivate trust and love between these people because uh, what God is calling us into together, we're going to need each other and we're going to need each other's backs. And so that, that's basically it during that formation season. It's, it's one meeting a month, one dinner a month, and that will then be the setting for the, the rhythm that we'll most likely step into in January. The final step is ordination. Ordination, I'm praying that on birthday Sunday of next year, we'll be able to celebrate and cheer. And we'll be able to ordain these men um, I'm already grateful for the men he's brought, but I'm asking, and would you ask God to, to give us these men for our church? We need it. Just keep losing my words. Let me close in a reflection. Let's talk to the potential nominees one more time. Actually, no, let me, let me invite you to pray. Um, three pieces that I would love to saturate your prayers during our season of prayer fasting. Discern your nominations, pray for gifted spirit-filled leaders, and then pray for unity and love in our church through the process. I think there's potential for the evil one to use this. Paul names that twice. He says there are snares here. There are traps here. And we do not need to go into those places right now as a church. We're a baby church we need to be rescued and steered away from the presence of the devil. So would you pray for these things over the next, over the next year with me? Uh, can I talk to the, can I talk to the guys who might be nominated? And I honestly have no idea, you know, who's actually going to be nominated. Why would you do this? I want to share two passages. To the elders among you, 1 Peter 5, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter, an elder to an elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, I do not think it is an empty thing that he says, elders, I saw how Christ suffered, let me talk to you. He says, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. That's our first hint. 
Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Listen to this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So, men, the first reason to do this is because of the chief shepherd. If he suffered for you, he says you can suffer for them. The chief shepherd chose the way. And there, I don't know of any other way than the Philippians 2 way. If God calls you, he calls you into the descent, into the suffering, into the sacrifice for the good of others. You can call it love, shorthand, that's fine. There's no other call. This is the call of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. And you don't have to do it this way. You can be saved by Jesus. Oh, but to imitate Jesus is a special thing. The chief shepherd and the imitation of the shepherd, that's who we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who says, I want to be like him, conformed to Christ through suffering for his people. Second thing that Peter says is that you're going to get the crown of glory. You're going to get a crown for this. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, but the, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. But when you lay down your life, this is the way of Philippians 2, there is no other way. You go to the cross, and then it says that he is raised up and given glory. The name that's above every name to the glory of God the Father. There's glory. There's a crown of glory if you take on this cult. But let me share just one passage that I cannot get out of my mind. This is 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul a shepherd and elder of church planter says, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown, if you hear crown? What is our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? He says, is it not you? He says, indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So here's what we're looking for. We want someone who knows the chief shepherd intimately, who imitates him, who has his heart for the sheep, who's willing to give his life for suffering for the good of his people. We're not looking for somebody who wants to serve for ego, for money, for prestige, or power. We're not looking for someone who wants to serve so their kids will respect him, or so the mom will be proud of them. We're looking for someone who knows the chief shepherd and wants to be conformed to his image. And we're looking for someone who loves you enough to see Christ formed in you, the hope of glory. Someone who wants a crown that has your name engraved in the side. Who 
when he glories in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes, is holding up a crown of glory and says, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. And that's, that's a calling of gravity. And the gravity and the accountability of this, they weigh on me. Not many should desire such a thing, James warns, because they're under stricter judgment. But with the gravity comes a glory that will be worth it. As you get to see these people in heaven, a new creation. So, to the high character men, the spirit-filled men, who are considering the calling, over the next six weeks and you're intimidated and you're thinking, I don't even know if I want my name put. And what does it mean if I do want my name put? What's this going to cost me? I just want to say it's worth it. The chief shepherd did it. And he did it for you. Okay. I don't even know why I'm crying so much. Uh, there, there's a lot here for us. Um, there's a lot of vulnerability. Um, and I'm intimidated by the process. Maybe some of you are too. I see people biting your nails and things like that. That's, I get it. But I think this season can actually be really beautiful. You know, th there's... There's weird conversations that come, right? When you have to talk through all this stuff with, with these people and you have to do all the follow-up and it, it takes time and you're, you're thinking, where are we now? Where are we now? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's like my son, my daughter, is we're driving 20 minutes away. It's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? This is a year away. But I think this has the potential to be a really beautiful process where when we get to sit down with these, with these men and, and their wives, we get to celebrate, I see in you what God is doing and the gifts that you're bringing into this. And there's going to be some men who say, I can't do it. And God be with you. I, I love that clarity of discernment. There's no clearer answer than a closed door. <laughs> there is true. I thank God for closed doors. Garth Brooks, right? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Let me pray. God, would you help us? Would you, would you lead us? Would you give us wise discernment? We don't want wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't want bad shepherds. We don't even want average shepherds. We want men who want to be like the chief shepherd, who love this people enough to give their lives to seeing our formation. But God, we also want love and unity in this process. There's potential for the devil to use this for division. And there's the potential for, for men to, in their conceit and pride, to, to be turned. Lord, would you keep those snares away from this community right now? Instead of hard and turmoil, would you make it possible for these conversations to be life-giving and affirming, transformative, God, would you bring and reveal and illuminate those spirit-filled men of high character who imitate Jesus? 
Would you help us all in this process so that this doesn't feel like a drag, but it feels like fresh energy because your spirit is being poured out in new ways on new people and you're, you're sharing the load and there's no more bottlenecks and, and you're, you're unleashing this house of prayer that we're asking for. Where it doesn't just, it's not capped by me, but that you're calling other people in who can lead us into something even deeper and greater. God, would you energize us in this process? Would you energize me in this process? Tend to my vulnerabilities, O oh Chief Shepherd. Uh, you are good. Thank you for the gentle way that you hold us next to your chest and the ways that you walk with us, the ways that you have the feet in your hand and you invite us over, you give us a scratch on the neck and just all the tender ways that you show your love that you already have for me here. And Father, thank you for your strength. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Would you give, would you give this community as a whole strength for this season? Oh, good shepherd, we praise your name. Amen. All right. Please don't forget, elder nomination forms on the blue table. If you need more than one, uh, you can take those. We'll print as many as we need. And then, of course, we'll send a PDF version on our Slack channel as a church. God bless you.